an Ironic Media production. Visit us at ironickmedia.com. So is this Alzheimer's? Is this vascular dementia? Something due to small strokes? Is this related to Parkinson's disease? What is going on? Like that's your specialty is teasing out exactly which diagnosis it is, or maybe it's a mixture of a couple of them, that sort of thing. Right. We are called in typically by a neurologist or often psychiatrist, internal medicine, family medicine doctor to help them tease that out. When we see an individual and that question is the referral question, we're going to be looking at their brain scan results, their blood test results, what medications they're on, and we'll come up with a menu of differential diagnoses. So sometimes we feel very confident that it's Alzheimer's disease. And there are, there are guidelines that we have to follow. Dementia Discussions. Here to help and empower our heroic caregivers with knowledge and experience. Dementia Discussions with the caregivers themselves and memory loss professionals. Here to help with 30 years as a geriatric social worker is your Dementia Discussions host, Barbara Hammond. Hello and welcome to Dementia Discussions. I am Barbara Hammond. Today on the show, my guest is Linda Erkeley. Linda is a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the Semmel Institute at UCLA and the director of the UCLA Longevity Center. Linda, welcome to the show. It's an honor to have you here today. Well, thank you, Barbara. And it it is my honor to be here today with you and your audience. You and I have worked in this field forever, but I don't actually know how you got into this world of geriatrics. I could tell you lots of stories like I was inspired by my grandfather and all these, but I don't have that kind of a story. I was in graduate school in a specialty training track called neuropsychology. And it's clinical psychology with an emphasis in assessing brain behavior relationships, basically brain function through administration of tests. And I got my start in depression, but then I started to get into brain imaging early on and blood flow in the brain. Fast forward it and I got my first job as a research assistant working with geriatric psychiatrist Gary Small at UCLA to put together a brain atlas or study he was doing in Alzheimer's disease risk. And I, I would say that is my first entree into the field, but I've always been fascinated by dementia and what happens in the brain. And of course, I did postdoctoral study in geriatric psychology, which emphasizes both cognition, but also mood, depression, and the issues that elders face in in our society. I really enjoyed it. 25 years later, here I am. And I feel completely rewarded and really enjoy this field and the population that I work with. And you're so dedicated. You have found your calling for sure. And I did. I was raised with my grandparents. My grandparents lived with us or very near us and with us. 
So being around older adults was nothing like out of the ordinary for me. They weren't novel. I didn't say, oh, how cute they are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I had to listen to them. So they were an integral part of our family life. It was really nothing to move into that. Yeah, a comfort level there. Since your interest is Alzheimer's and the brain and clinical testing, like you said, let's talk about that a little bit. What is a neuropsychologist? What do you guys do? First, a neuropsychologist is a clinical psychologist. So that means we have to go to graduate school and get broad spectrum training in everything from theory to doing psychotherapy with individuals. But the neuropsychologist is the branch that specializes in assessment, particularly of intellectual functions. And that is important when somebody not only is aging and you're suspecting that their functioning is changing and they may be developing a memory problem, but it's also important for people who've suffered head injuries, stroke, seizure disorders, and very important in the assessment of children for intellectual, developmental, right, disabilities, or just other school problems, you name it. So we cover all age ranges, but typically a neuropsychologist specializes in either, you know, adults or kids. There are some really gifted people that do the lifespan, but uh, it's often the case that you kind of stick with either adults or kids. And then some of us focus in geriatrics. Yeah, that makes sense. And your focus is geriatric neuropsychology and doing neuropsych testing. Tell us about like when would someone come to see you? When when do people typically search out neuropsych testing? We typically function as a consultant for neuropsychological testing, which means that someone's doctor often refers them to us. Now, sometimes an attorney will refer them to us if it has to do with a forensic situation. Somebody had an auto accident and they have changes in their brain functioning after that and in their thinking and they're involved in a court case. So an attorney may send them to assess that for legal purposes, right? But clinically speaking, like the average person, if they're having memory problems, which is often how it starts for older adults, but not limited to that, or if they've suffered a stroke or or even a mini stroke, where they had an auto accident and they hit their head and they've noticed a change in their thinking, they'll tell their doctor and hopefully they will have a doctor who is responsive to their mm-hmm. concerns. And with a little bit of in-office assessment, they should then send them to us as a specialist, much like one would get a brain MRI or go get lab tests. And so we perform the testing we interpret the results, and we make recommendations for the patient and for the family. And then that information goes back to the doctor. But we also will meet with the family and talk about what we found. And would you say it's usually at the beginning, like before you were talking about depression, would you say people come to you 
like, I don't know what's going on. Something's changing. I'm not sure what it is. Are you at the beginning trying to figure out, okay, we're really trying to tease out here. Is there really dementia or is this just some life adjustment stuff, retirement, anxiety, depression? I don't know. Yeah, that's one class of scenarios. And I, I think it's the ideal in the sense that you get to detect a change in the brain early so that one can get the appropriate treatment and recommendations early on. But we see quite a few individuals who are later in the course of whatever is going on with them. And, and sometimes it's because that person doesn't come to the attention of a doctor in a timely way, either because the family doesn't quite understand what's going on and they don't think it's a problem right away, sadly, because of lack of access to resources and health disparities. There are people that don't get to the doctor in a timely way, and so they're diagnosed later in the course. So we see people, at least for cognitive assessments, in the early to mid stages, usually when somebody is really severely ill, their problems are so obvious that the doctors don't need us to diagnose, but they may have us come in and make recommendations for the family. But typically it's not when someone has severe degree of of cognitive impairment. Yeah, because you're more part of like the discovery, trying to figure out exactly, tease out exactly what's going on, right? As a neuropsychologist, we're part of the discovery, but then as a clinical psychologist, that's where we start to work with some of us, with the families and the caregivers, and might even make recommendations when people are having behavior problems and having trouble really communicating with the person. So we we do come in there too, especially in geriatrics, a little more of a jack of all trades than working with the younger age. So someone might see you for the neuropsychological testing and then continue to see you for the caregiver issues or the behavioral issues that go on along the way. Right. And we can get consults. Like sometimes I get consults from a neurologist who says, my patient's spouse is having problems dealing with the patient and we talk to her. So sometimes we get called in where we don't do any testing, but we kind of help to analyze the situation, listen to what's going on and try to make recommendations to intervene or help the the caregiver intervene. Yeah, that's great. So tell us a little bit about the actual testing. Like what goes on and how long does that take? And tell us a little bit about that process. Sure. Well, the the testing typically involves a few different stages. So the first stage is the intake stage. And that's where we talk to the patient and preferably with a family member or what we call a collateral, someone who knows the patient well and can provide input. This is often because the patient may not be aware of all of their problems or the family member or collateral is just an observer, an outside observer. So we typically ask the patient, when did these problems start? In fact, why are you here today? What's your understanding of why you're here? 
And that can be interesting. <laughs> Sometimes the answers that you get for that. Somebody who's ill doesn't have much of an idea of why they were referred, even though they've been told. And what their complaints are, when did they start? And we get a, a, a timeline and a course of what's going on. Then we get practical description of the types of problems they're having. And as you're very familiar with as a care manager, how does this affect their daily life? Right? What can yeah. they do? What can they not do? Has this affected their work, their relationships? After that, we actually assess people's mood, how they're feeling to check for depression, anxiety, any kind of uh, psychosis like hallucinations or delusions. We do a, a kind of a course observation of people's neurological functions where we don't act as a neurologist, but the power of observation. Do they have trouble with their gait? Do they have a tremor? What does their facial expression look like? Do they have symmetries? Things like that in their expression. And then we, we do a little bit of cognitive screening, some basic questions just to get a sense of kind of like a rough estimate of where that person is, which helps us determine what tests we want to give. So other very important questions that are included are questions about their culture, about family structure and values, and about language. What's their native language? How were they educated? How far did they go in school? And there are times when we have to either refer them to perhaps a neuropsychologist who has expertise in assessing people in their native language or in a mixture of their native language and English because tests are very biased in terms of how they're developed, usually for Americans or people of European descent or just people of different backgrounds, but typically American. And then we try to get some estimates of their kind of baseline functioning. We have a way to estimate like what was the cognitive or estimated intellectual abilities of people before they saw us, which is hard to do. But we base this on reading tests. We base this on what they did for a living, how far they went in school, things like that. So that's the first part of it. Then the testing happens and we choose the tests based on everything that I just discussed, where people come from, what we think they can handle in testing. You know, are they going to get tired? Are they going to get overwhelmed? And we do the testing. It can be by the neuropsychologist or it can be by a person trained to give the tests. So once that testing is done in older adults, that could take anywhere from, you know, two to four hours and, and it can be broken up. Mm -hmm. If somebody gets tired, you can break it up. And then the tests are scored and they're interpreted. And the interpretation is extremely important for so many reasons, because we're going to make, you know, judgments about people based on the testing that we need to compare the test results to somebody, to groups of people who are as close as possible to the person we tested in terms of age, education, and sometimes ethnicity as well. This is where our expertise really comes in to determine that interpretation and comparison. Then we write a report. Then we write a report with recommendations. 
and we talk to the family. This is so interesting. So it's really tailored to the person. It's not like you just take a battery of tests and decide, okay, everyone gets the same battery of tests. You're really looking at this person, like you said, their background, their educational level, their ethnicity, their primary language, and then actually picking out which tests you're going to give them and having them do those particular tests. So I didn't know that. I thought it was like a block of tests. You give it to everyone. You see how they do. But no, that's not what how it is at all. That's exactly right. That was a really nice summary. So that's where the experience and the expertise comes in. We have to understand the tests. We have to understand a little more than a little bit about how tests are constructed. We have to understand something about culture. I mean, a lot about culture. Because that's where mistakes can be made in the interpretation. And we also know like where these tests come from. So who were the tests we call normed on? Who are we comparing the person to? Were these typically people from the city? Were there rural people? Was everybody European white? Is there a good diversity in who took these tests so that we can make sure that everybody is represented in that sample that we're applying to our individual. So these are all the things that we have to think about and think about it beforehand in the choice of tests that we make. The other thing that we look at is how was that person that day? How did they sleep the night before? Were they anxious? Were they angry? Are they smoking pot the night? before they see us, things like that, that we do need to know. So Uh what medications they're on, what's their health history, where they are that day is very important. Right. All gets taken into consideration. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're teasing out what's happening, and then you're meeting with the family. And generally, what sorts of questions are you answering? Are you answering, I'm just throwing this out there, like, not only just, okay, does my mom have Alzheimer's? But is it, should my mom still be driving? Should my mom still be living on her own? Like, are these the sorts of questions you're getting from family members? Thank you for asking that question, because that's kind of like the $65,000 question. There could be a number of different questions that a doctor wants to have answered, or the family wants answered or the patient wants answer. So one is, yes, is my thinking changing? Do I have a problem? And then if I have a problem, what do you think that problem is due to? Now, sometimes we have an idea because somebody had a car accident and they hit their head and they want to know what the consequences cognitively of that are. Sometimes they ask questions like, are they getting better? So we may see somebody more than once after a stroke or or a traumatic brain injury and we'll compare how they do over time. There are questions that come up. Maybe a person has depression, but they're also becoming forgetful. And so in those cases, we're trying to understand if that forgetfulness seems to be due to the depression Or does it look like they're developing Alzheimer's disease or another type of what we call a neurodegenerative disorder, like a dementia, like vascular dementia, for example? 
is that really what's going on? Like, are the two related what's going on here? Or is it just another manifestation of Alzheimer's disease? Now, in some individuals, I don't do this kind of assessment, but my colleagues at UCLA do, they may want somebody to get tested before they have brain surgery. How's their memory? It's going to be very important for the surgeon to know this. Sometimes they're right in the operating room, helping direct and identify brain regions. Like if you can avoid this area, <laughs> you know, avoid it. Right? Wow. Section. Yeah. I don't do that, but that's another way that a neuropsychologist can be helpful. And, and in geriatrics, we see a lot of patients with Parkinson's disease that get assessed before they have brain implants or deep brain stimulation treatments. Mm -hmm. So it can be anything. What, what I do, though, predominantly is the early detection of dementia, help to identify if we think it's dementia, what type is it? Or different, what we call differential diagnosis, right? What, what's going on? What type is it? And I will see in patients who come in, maybe that have been found in their home confused, or perhaps they're delusional. They're having terrible depression. We'll get called in to help say, okay, this patient is delusional. They think that their daughter is trying to poison them. Is this? psychosis or do you think this is the beginning of dementia too so we get called in for really grave people with grave disability and danger to self that sounds like it and just talk about that a little bit about the differential diagnosis so what you're really saying in plain english is if a family member is wondering what type of dementia? So is this Alzheimer's? Is this vascular dementia? Something due to small strokes? Is this related to Parkinson's disease? What is going on? Like that's your specialty is teasing out exactly which diagnosis it is, or maybe it's a mixture of a couple of them, that sort of thing. Right. We are called in typically by a neurologist or often psychiatrist, internal medicine, family medicine doctor to help them tease that out. When we see an individual and that question is the referral question, we're going to be looking at their brain scan results, their blood test results, what medications they're on, and we'll come up with a menu of differential diagnoses. So sometimes we feel very confident that it's Alzheimer's disease. And there are, there are guidelines that we have to follow that tell us about the level of confidence one can have. And there are, are test results that tell us this too. But sometimes it's not so clear. And so we provide explanations of which ones we think are more likely versus ones that are less likely and why. And then the doctor will take that. Maybe they need more, the individual needs more tests. Maybe they need a different kind of a brain scan. Maybe they need an additional set of lab tests. Mm -hmm. Maybe they need a spinal tap after this. So we're not necessarily the last stop. Sometimes we're the first stop and help the referring physician narrow it down. I can give 15 more tests, but which one should I really be giving? Right? Because mm -hmm. we don't want to put the patient through all this. We don't want to waste resources. And so they may send us first to say, okay, based on what you guys think, 
let's see if we can narrow this down and do any follow-up tests. And sometimes we'll recommend follow-up tests as well. Okay, so you go through all of this testing, and then you were saying that you talked to the family afterwards about your recommendations. So tell us a little bit about that part. I mean, this is the whole reason, aside from differential diagnosis of generating the report. Once we talk about our diagnostic impression and what types of other tests might need to be done, and again, that's not our job to figure that out, but what we think based on our opinion might be informative. I really think of these recommendations as there are some for the doctor, there are some for the patient, and then there are some for the family. So one question that gets asked a lot is, can the patient live by themselves or himself, herself? This comes up a lot with inpatients because they're often found, many are coming from an environment where they were living alone and were found in distress. So whether somebody can live alone or not has to do with how bad their memory is and other functions. How much does the cognitive problem interfere with their life? Can they cook for themselves without setting the house on fire? Or do they even know how to cook anymore? Can they follow a recipe? Can they make a recipe from their head, right, from memory? Can they make a sandwich? Can they keep up with their bills and pay their bills? Or are they making mistakes, double paying, forgetting? Are they being prey to scammers? Which is not necessarily a reason that somebody can't live alone, but it's part of the picture. Another part about living alone would be more physical. Are they fall risks? Can they make sound decisions in an emergency? That's major. So that's one set. Can they live alone? Another would be, can they live with their family? And that's not a decision we make, but we do look into that. Like, can the family support them and what they need? Because that's part of, we will tell the family, this is what your loved one needs. They need supervision or, or they, they need help making a sandwich. They can't trust somebody to dispense their medication safely. These are things that we determine or will opine on based on the neuropsychological test. Driving is a big one. And people often say, well, you're going to take my driver's license away. And so for the record, no, we don't take anybody's driver's license away. But doctors in the state of California, and many people will say neuropsychologists fall among the mandated reporters, which means that if somebody has dementia, then a report is made to the health department. They call it a morbidity report, saying this person has X disease or disorder that makes them unsafe for driving. Could be anything. Could be a seizure disorder. It could be a stroke. It it could be dementia. And then that is conveyed by the health department of the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles. Then the Department of Motor Vehicles sends a letter to the patient and basically says either A, come in for a test, we're not sure you should be driving, or B, if if the doctor thinks that their problems are not just mild but moderate dementia, then they will have their license revoked. But only in the case of moderate dementia, and they can still have a hearing review their medical record. 
if there is dementia, we typically report it to the health department. And then at some point, a decision is made along the way of whether a person can keep driving or have restricted driving or whether they're told not to drive anymore. Mm-hmm. So that is something that we do. We also make mandated reports to adult protective services if we determine that an adult is being abused or if we determine that, unfortunately, the older adult is abusing another older adult or a child. This happens sometimes. Those are like the hard things that we do that aren't fun for anybody, right? We also make recommendations of how people can compensate for their cognitive problems. You know, what kinds of tools can they use? Do they need to use notes? Do they need to have calendars and big clocks in their house? Or maybe they just need to stay cognitively stimulated. Go take a class. Go to the senior center. Take lessons. But don't sit there being a couch potato because it's not it's not good for your brain. We typically support doctor's recommendations for heart health because heart health is brain health. So if somebody is not exercising, if somebody smokes, if somebody is drinking too much, then we will make recommendations about cutting back or how to get help for those. We really go through the gamut. Mm-hmm. And and then if if the family is suffering, we will give them resources on where to go for help. Barbara, we have talked about people needing case managers mm-hmm. to help the family. We have sent people to the Alzheimer's Association. And so we make those kinds of recommendations. And we send people to our support groups, the ones that you run and the ones that we all run here at UCLA or outside of UCLA. We, we tell caregivers, you're under stress. This will be helpful to you. We kind of pick from a, a universe of ways to help. The doctor do what they need to do. The patient do what they need to do. And the family support the patient as well. Linda, you have a huge job. Wow. That encompasses a lot. That's, that's amazing what you guys do. Yeah, I can I see. It's, you know, it's all good. It's all good. It's big. You take over often where we leave off, right? Because how people come to get care managers, I should yeah, now yeah. interview you, but <laughs> We often recommend that people right. need more. They need more help than what they can give on their own. And so we will tell you, folks, you need more help at home than what you're able to provide for someone or on your own. Right. Yes. I know you are. It's, it's, seriously, though, that is right. When you, after you guys have told families that their mom can't live alone or their mom should not be driving or the license has been suspended or lost, yes, they're calling us and yeah. saying, I need help finding a caregiver for my mom. I need to figure out how to get her to her appointments, those sorts of things. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. We're all part of a process and we're all part of the different tree of help and resources for people. Well, I can say those of us care managers out there, we really appreciate folks like you. So we really do appreciate the testing that you guys do really pinning down the issues and talking honestly to families about them. So important. The answers that that families get from folks like you is tremendous. And so I can't tell you how valuable that piece is. Well, thank you. And, And that's good to hear because that is another piece of what we all do, right? And you do too. I'm sure you have to reiterate the whole thing about what people can and can't do. 
is being really clear about what's going on with someone because they shouldn't be in a quandary. Diagnosis is a process. It doesn't happen after just one visit. Often it's, it's, it takes a while to really narrow things down and figure it out. But we certainly want that process to be completed and for people to understand what's going on with them or their loved one. And we know based on the research that that doesn't always happen. There's a lot of incomplete workups. Patients and families don't always feel like they got the answers that they needed. And so, yeah, I mean, we try to close that loop, but it's not always possible because, again, we don't always see people at the end. And we want people to go back to their doctor. We want them to work with their doctor. Mm-hmm. And that's another important part of what we do is, is to help people understand, and, and you do this actually more than we do, how to understand to work with their doctor. Like, go back to your doctor now and talk about treatment options. Go yes. back to your doctor now and talk about X. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Take the recommendations and go back to your doctor and get the medications, get whatever treatments. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for being here today, for taking time out of your really busy schedule. I so appreciate you and your expertise, and I'm just grateful for you. So thank you, Linda. And thank you, Barbara. And thank you for all the good that you do, because your job is where the rubber meets the road for a lot of people. And it's the hard part is implementing recommendations and seeing patients and families through their journey. And thanks for my honor and pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Thank you for joining us today on another episode of Dementia Discussions. If you're a caregiver or know someone who's a caregiver that would like to be a guest on the show, please call me at 310-362-8232 or go to DementiaDiscussions.net forward slash contact and let me know. It takes courage because not everyone's willing to do that. I would love to have you. Remember that you can follow Dementia Discussions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot if you would leave a review. For any other information about this podcast, please visit me at DementiaDiscussions.net. And please share this podcast with someone you know if you think it may help. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you here again next time on Dementia Discussions.